Gordon Gossett describes himself as a holistic health advisor, a positive outlook practitioner, a non-invasive brain surgeon, and an eternal life tour operator. He's currently working on a book titled, You Can't Make Honey Out of Goat Droppings, But God Can. (laughs) Yeah, he's an interesting guy, but let me tell you, he's an interesting guy with an incredible story and a life that has been transformed. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's fantastic to have you with us this week for Signs of the Times Radio. I'm zooming over the Tasman Sea to New Zealand and chatting with Gordon Gossett. How are you, Gordon? Yeah, I'm great. Good to talk to the West Island. Oh, excellent. Oh, so you're on the mainland there. Okay, that's good. That's good. I actually um, spent a couple of years growing up in Christchurch when I was a kid. So so there we go. Are you in Christchurch? Yeah, out of Christchurch. We live out near the hills. Obviously, it's early days yet, Gordon, but I, I hear you've you've had frost already, expecting some cold weather. Yeah, yeah. We've had the most amazing autumn ever, warmest autumn ever, but all the uh, pundits... The farmers who seem to be the best weather forecasters are all suggesting we're in for a really big winter, and we're noticing it already. The mornings are really cold. Now, Gordon, you've written a, a fantastic article for us in the, the June Signs of the Times magazine, the cover story, actually, entitled From Pawn to a King, and um, that's P-A-W-N, as in the, the chess piece. You sort of likened your, your life to a chess game in, in some ways where you were felt in some ways like a, a piece on the board and the, and there were grandmasters sort of doing doing battle o- over your soul. As I, I have to confess, I actually chucked a quote into your article from Bob Dylan, you know, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Okay. You know, that that sort of uh, quote seems to sum up y- your early life in, in particular. So can you, did you grow up in Christchurch? Yeah, I did. I did I grow up in Christchurch. In probably one of the bad hoods, mm-hmm. sort of the uh, Harlem of, of Christchurch, one of them. <laughs> okay. Christchurch has got a few of them, actually. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, don't, don't say Belfast. That's where I grew up. So, <laughs> Yeah, so t- tell us a little bit about your, your family background and what that sort of growing up situation was like. So we, got, we grew up in, a, in an environment of league racing and beer. Mm-hmm. So it was all, we, we, every single... Saturday morning, we were on a horse racing track, mm-hmm. and we learned how the how the racing industry works. And you know, we were spending a lot of time at horse trainers' places. My dad was very involved with the horse racing fraternity. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he had over them, but you know, it, the whole thing's a, a scam. <laughs> but uh, he get told when horses were going off, and you'd buy a brand new car. Yeah, but we learned, you know, we would just. Every morning, we Saturday morning, we'd be at the racetrack and we'd just go around and collect bottles and sell them, five cents or whatever it was, sixpence for a bottle in those days. Mm-hmm. When we had enough money, when we got a dollar together, we would bet on a horse. Mm-hmm. Give it to my mum, she'd back a horse for us. And if it went off and won, then that was good. We had money to keep betting with. So we were very young at the time. Mm. But the horse failed to fire, then it was back to picking up bottles. Mm. So, wow, then, okay. You know, I mean, drinking. My dad was giving me alcohol from 
you know, the age of four. Wow. The first time I ever sat in a bar with them during open hours, sitting at the bar, I was eight years of age. You know, Goodness. We able to make an informed decision about my future direction in life. <laughs> <laughs> So, not to give t- too much away, but what what sort of decade are we talking about when when all this is happening? I'm I'm trying to re- imagine a time when an eight year old would be welcome to sit up at a bar <laughs> during opening hours. This must have been a couple a few decades ago now. Yeah, well, I would have that would have been in uh, 1965. Okay, in the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that wasn't it was illegal and it wasn't the dumb thing. But mm. my, as I said, my father knew all the horse trainers, but he also knew all the publicans. Ah, right. Okay. I, to this day, we don't know what he had over them all, but they, he was just welcome anywhere to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, today, if he was the same license that he was given around the place, you'd think he was a meth dealer, but of course, there was no meth back in those days. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what it was, but everybody embraced him, the publicans and the horse trainers. So well, There you go. Well, maybe he was just a bit of a friendly bloke like yourself, you know, that gets along with everyone, you know, he's easy to talk to. Sometimes that's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, well, he certainly was that. He, you couldn't go anywhere in New Zealand and somebody not know my father walking down the street. Yeah, and he passed yeah. away at fifty-two. So he, you know, he lived about four lives by the time he. he wow, there you go, man. So I mean, look, obviously, it's not it's not ideal to have have an eight year old, you know, sitting up to a, a public bar drinking alcohol. In some ways, it sounds like a sort of an idyllic childhood, in, you know, a, a lot of fun, a lot of family, a, a sort of a community around you. But in your article, you you kind of paint it as a possibly a, a bit of a, a destructive thing. Was was that your sense when you were there? Is that something you've sort of only appreciated later on? I probably appreciated it later on, you know, because uh, it was just your environment. And as yeah. a child, that's just, that's what you know. Mm. The drinking, villains coming around to your house. My brother and I, we ran a hotel. The publican and my father, this is a big hotel in the middle of Christchurch. Mm. We were left running the bar and the publican and my dad went off somewhere else. Mm. We had to close up and send the other patrons out when they when they could still make it to their cars. Yep. And my brother was 15 and I was 14. <laughs> we were running a big hotel at, at that age. And then we locked up. Funny story, we locked up. My brother and I were then going to go up to the lounge upstairs and play pool. Mm. Went up there, racked up the balls, and I heard somebody on the roof. And I freaked out, thought, oh, no, somebody's busting in. We'd put the money away from the till, and I'm thinking, oh, somebody's going to break in. And I'm standing there next to the window in the upstairs room, and then the window starts to lift, and I'm standing there with a pool cue with my knees are shaking. <laughs> 14, about to whack this burglar over the head with a pool cue, and then my brother sticks his head through the window, and he, what did you lock me out for? He's gone out for the rubbish out, and I've locked the doors. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were fully familiar with the industry, and my brother, for most of his life, has been a, a manager of hotels. Mm. Well, there you go. There you go. In your article, you do paint a picture of it, perhaps not being quite so idyllic, but it end, ending up in, you know, with, with gangs and a lot of violence and, and drugs and, and, and this sort of stuff. You could have ended up a, you know, a respected publican in, in Christchurch, you know, bit of horse riding, bit racing, bit of betting on the side, but, but generally okay. But it seems that your, your life took a bit of a, a darker, more difficult or, or destructive turn. Yeah. Well, you know, what happened for me, I, I was always a bit of a, an oddball in the family. 
I was breeding birds. I had a little bird breeding industry, breeding parrots at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. And I was going to be a vet. My life was all planned out. I had the, the plan. Everybody knew about my plan. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I was, I had a serious injury at eight. That's one of the times when I was eight, my dad picked me up from the hospital after being in there for three weeks. I could have, could have died. Mm. I had gangrene in my leg and they hadn't noticed. And, you know, in my article, I talk about it and th- there was all these incidences where somebody was looking after me. Mm. And one of the grandmasters on this chest game were, was looking after me. And the first incident was I was going in for three weeks every day getting this blood drained out of my leg. Yeah. And the surgeon, for no reason, decided to leave the surgery and go and have a look at what was happening in A&E. Mm. And he took one look at me, abused the nurses and sent me into surgery. I had gangrene in my leg, and if they hadn't have done anything within three days, I would have cut my leg off at the hip, mm. and in five to seven days I would have been dead. Wow. And, you know, God, I believe that God... I didn't know who, who it was, but somebody sent him down. My mum was amazed. He'd just come down. and Yeah, but the A&E department have had many chances to... Finish you off. <laughs> yeah, no, to, to, to get their vengeance on me. I've had some amazing stories that I'm going to talk about in my book about my life that's, that's coming out. Amazing things. But, yeah, so that God sort of looked after me, and so I couldn't play sport. Mm. I, I couldn't do anything. I'd had half my leg muscle, thigh muscle cut out. And uh, so I was just sort of a quiet kid heading in a direction, going to be a vet, and that was it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's quite academic at school. Okay. And then, and as I say in my article, that turned around. I had, a, I had an amazing shift when I got introduced by a family friend to rock music. Mm. And, man, honestly, my life turned around. In three weeks, I was a completely different person. So what, 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 what was it? I mean, how, how did that happen? How did that transformation happen? What did it feel like in, inside for you? Do you remember? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's for people on the outside, they, they couldn't understand it. I turned into a completely different person. Now, on the inside, it was like getting you know, thrown on a roller coaster. Mm. And, yeah, just my attitude, everything changed. My wants, my desires, and... and it was all, I didn't know. I hadn't made a conscious decision. It was all subliminal. It was subconscious. And, and yeah, I ended up hanging around in, in the wrong places. And mm. So, how, so how, how old were you when, when this happened? About 13 or 14. About 13 or 14. Okay. So th- this is sort of an age where the, the hormones are starting to kick in and where you would expect a little bit of a, you know, end of childhood into teenagehood. But it sounds like it was a pretty... Uh, Pretty rough transition for you, and and with with rock music sort of taking that in a really negative direction. What was it the the lyrics that you listened to and identified with? Was it just the energy of the music? Did it like make you feel a certain way? Like what? I'm just trying to get my head head around that. At the time, I probably wouldn't have even related it to the music. It was sort of a mm-hmm. hindsight. Okay. I remember I watched uh, the song "Remains the Same." That was the a movie of Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. In 72, they did Madison Square Gardens. Mm-hmm. Over 50,000 people. It was the biggest concert in, in history at that time. They made a movie out of it. I actually watched that movie, went to the movies and watched it 13 times. Oh, wow. The first time I sat there watching it, it just blew me away because in that movie, it's they have the, you know, a lot of the concert happening, but they also have fantasy sequences. Mm-hmm from all four band members 
and also Ian Grant, the manager. Mm -hmm. So there's these five fantasy sequences with music playing in the background, and I'm sitting there just blown away because mm. it was my life. Every one of those fantasy sequences was my life. It was quite surreal realising the influence that it had, even to the point, you know, um, John Bonham, who died in Alistair Crowley's castle, drunk himself to death, he was into he was a petrol head. Well, I had no interest in vehicles whatsoever. Mm. I mean, I was just I was a bit of a nerdy kid. Mm-hmm. I was a, a bit of a Bill Gates without the money, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I just I had no interest in, in motors whatsoever. Mm. But all of a sudden, starting to le- listen to Led Zeppelin, we built this insanely fast car. Mm-hmm. Just craziness. But when I was out on the freeway, you know, racing Porsches and, and Corvette Stingrays and stuff, when I'm in a high-speed race, I had to change to whatever was playing on the music, and I, it was just compulsory. I had to reach over and get a, a Led Zeppelin 8-track and put that in. Mm. I was going fast. I had to listen to Led Zeppelin. And, mm-hmm. and then I saw what the influence of it. So that was retrospectively, but at the time it was so clear, it just it changed everything. My clothing, mm-hmm. my behaviour, my associates and my future direction. So, yeah, I didn't do the vet thing when started working in the meatworks at 15. And prior to that, I'd been in a situation, came out of a, a bar, uh, not a bar, a disco, a dance, mm-hmm. held for youth in Hornby. And there's all these people in a car park. And I'm, whoa, what's going on here? And there was a, there was a group of cars, and then there were, on one side and some cars on the other side, and there was all these patched gang members. Mm. And they're fronting up against one man who I'd never met in my life. I, I knew his brother. I'd heard about him. And there was all the guys that were the tough guys when I was at school, you know, that played in the rugby team and all that. And they're all, they're all over to the one side. And then there's these patch gang members on the other side. And all these guys that I thought were the tough guys at school are all hiding behind cars. <laughs> and this guy's standing on his own. Mm. A guy by the name of Gavin Austin, one of the gang members, you know, a lady got to know, he came running at this man with a machete and tried to behead him. And he only just got out of the way. And he said to the, all the, you know, the tough guys, can get somebody back me up here? Give me something to fight back with. So somebody threw him a screwdriver. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, that levels the playing field somewhat. And I just had this insane sense of, of injustice just came over me. And I thought, I can't let that guy die alone. And at the age of 14, I walked up and stood next to him. Mm. And then another guy walked up to him, and the other guy's nickname was Ted Hungry, so that sort of indicates his physique. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy, Alan, he looked around at both of us and he thought, man, this is my cavalry. <laughs> we played 14-year-old and, and this skinny guy. And then I just thought, man, I'm going to die. And mm. I don't know why I stepped up there, but I did. And then the Police all came roaring in and the gang members all fled. It didn't go so well for me a week later when I met the gang members when I was coming out of the picture that was on my own. Mm. That's another story. But, you know, a few years later, I started working at the Meatworks and met the same man that I'd stood next to. And he said, hey, you're that guy that... that backed um, you up. Yeah, backed him up, yeah. What did you do that for? And I said, I don't know. I just thought you can't die on your own. And so he took me under his wing and it wasn't a good wing to be under. Mm. He took me into a into a darker place with you know a lot of drinking, 
you know, that was I was familiar with that, but you know, this is next level partying mm, and binge violence. drinking, yeah, yeah. This guy had an amazing reputation as a fighter, so he would get us into into fighting to the point we would go on a Saturday night if there's no parties. A group of us from the rugby club would just go around to a gang mem- gang headquarters just to hassle the gang members. Crazy wow. stuff. Yeah, but crazy. he was, yeah, it was really crazy. And, you know, I got into rugby and had this sort of, I don't know, an unnatural ability for rugby. And the next thing on the rugby became massive in my life. And ego. Ego mm. became the big thing. Pride, you know, seeing a name in the paper most weeks strokes the ego like a feather bower. <laughs> yeah, so that was sort of just this this roller coaster I was on, and then I met my, the lady that's now my wife, and she introduced mm. me to the drug world. Yeah, wow. And it took about two nanoseconds, maybe three, for me to work out, man, there's money in this stuff. Mm, mm. Vet, I can retire at 30 illegally. And so mm. that just started, you know, it's a long, long spiral of just, getting more and more and more involved in the drug world. Not because I was into drugs so much, but the money. And I became a, a major dealer in drugs and, yeah. and mayhem death for people. So so how does how does someone who sort of is living in that environment brought out that way become a, a Christian pastor? I mean, that it suggests a, an incredible transformation. Was it like one big event or, or a series of events? Yeah, well, it, it was... Came to a bit of a climax. Through all of this, another interesting thing happened. At the age of 17, I read an article in the Christchurch Press, our major newspaper over here, mm-hmm. and it was about the the connection between diet and disease. Yep. And I just thought, wow, thought about that, cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And so I I started to study that, everything I could on that. It just made so much sense to me. And so I started to modify my lifestyle. At the age of 21, I had a complete dietary change, totally got onto a health kick. I was helping people with disease. And so that became a, a really major thing for me. While all the background's going on, as I said in my article, you know, I might not have been the only one, but I'm sure there wasn't too many senior rugby captaining, handgun carrying, drug dealing, deer hunting vegans on the planet at the time. <laughs> one of them. <laughs> So it's a bit oxymoronic, but you know, doing all that stuff. But I was, I was into health, and and so all the way through, there was this. I didn't know what it was. I knew there was a supernatural power looking after me. Yeah, you, you called it the thing. Apparently, you'd the say, thing. "Oh, the the thing is happening to me again." Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a friend of mine was managing a rock band touring around New Zealand. You know, I managed a rock band at one time as well. I was quite into the music thing. And then they couldn't get their, their PA system into a hotel on the coast, so we had to take some monitors over. He came to see me because I had that fast car. We're roaring over there, went the wrong way. You know, just idea of the lifestyle. We're heading over there. He stops at the first hotel on the way to Christchurch and bought us a dozen bottles of wine. Of course he did. And I had a big <laughs> pile of, of weed, and so, you know, we went yep. in, in a very good frame. Mm. But... I was doing 170 kilometres an hour and saw a car coming towards us and just thought it was on the road and got to the right on a bend and realised the car was coming out of a driveway and there was no way I could make the corner. I just turned away from them. I remember thinking, I can't kill those innocent people. So I turned away from the driveway they were in and uh, went over some rocks, went back and had a look. The rocks were two foot 
high. We, we launched over the top of them. Canberra, the road, fired us, and we're heading straight into a forest. Mm. And I still see this friend. He just doesn't live far away now, and we always talk about that. Mm. that something grabbed our car and moved it through the air. We were launched, launched sideways and uh, landed in the drive behind the other car. Yeah, it was a bit of an experience. We entered into a shingle driveway, still doing probably 150 kilometres an hour. Mm. And he uh, went into a car park. It was a hotel car park. Spun round and round and round, sprayed shingle and dust everywhere. Finally ended up with the headlights pointing into the entrance of the hotel on the West Coast. Now, the West Coast in New Zealand is a bit of a feral place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were sitting there and he said, we weren't supposed to die then, man, and then we both just started laughing. The adrenaline and the influence of the substances just sent us into this big laugh. But then the the people in the hotel all gathered together at the top and started, you know, discussing coming down to invite us in. Probably not. And he said, you've got to get us out of here, man. So I started to come and roll out. <laughs> so there was that, that. We had eight cops and a drug dog went through our house. God blinded their eyes. Mm. Just I, There's so many times that this thing happened. And, uh, you know, to list them all is going to take an entire book. Yeah, long, 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 longer than we've got. And you, um, and <laughs> we actually only have a few minutes left. I, I knew this would happen because, yeah, your story is, is, is so incredible, Gordon. Yeah, so, so, I mean, so when, when you were a kid, you, you did spend some time, like, going to Sunday school and you even, like, used to read a little Bible there for a while. But obviously, you know, as an adult, being aware of this kind of thing, you know, and these sort of strange occurrences and this sense that some cosmic power is looking after you is still a long way from opening a Bible again and setting foot inside a church. How, how did that happen? You, you touched on the fact that we got sent to Sunday school. I was talking to a fellow mm. who got my name off a church notice board just this week. He's still doing weed and he's had a similar background to me. Mm. And he said, yeah, I got sent to Sunday school. We all got sent to Sunday school, even though my parents didn't believe. It was just a dumb thing. You know, mm. it's like getting Christmas presents. And so I read my Bible till rock music kicked in. And then one of the most amazing things was I ended up in the Divine Light Mission meeting in Wellington after going up there to watch Canterbury win the Rangfurly Shield in rugby. And I started quoting the Bible to these people. And I didn't, and that freaked me out. I didn't know what, how did I know this stuff? So <laughs> didn't didn't realise you'd remembered, huh? <laughs> oh, God was doing, the, the thing was doing an amazing miracle and I couldn't work that one out. Yeah. But anyway, my wife became a Christian. She invited me to a health meeting because I was involved, interested in the health thing. Mm-hmm. Because the connection between diet and disease, the evidence was overwhelming and irrefutable. Mm. There was no way, it, that's why I changed my life. It was just evidence-based. So I went to this Christian meeting. The guy was going to talk about health, and I was very arrogant, thought he won't know anything. I couldn't <laughs> believe what he, his name was Bilotto, and I could not believe what he was sharing. And I still quote it verbatim today when I'm doing health lectures. And I thought, far out, how come that's in the Bible? I, didn't, I had a real bad attitude towards Christians. Yep. You know what? I, I remember old Pastor Billy Otto um, for when I was a kid in, in New Zealand. He used to come and do some like assemblies for us you know, in the classroom. I remember him telling us stories and, and things mm-hmm. like that. I've, I've since met his grandchildren. Um, they live not far from me um, in Lake Macquarie. But yeah. But yeah, old, old Pastor Billy Otto. Yeah, great, great story. So this would have been a, a Seventh-day Adventist health and, and faith sort of, you know, Bible meeting, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so he, it was part of an evangelism campaign he was running in Christchurch. So I went to that. 
I was blown away. I thought, man, Chris, this, this isn't in the Bible, surely. So I'd spent 10 years studying disease, particularly cancer, mm. biochemistry and microbiology, and I suddenly realized all I needed to do was read the first 29 verses of the Bible, and everything I'd learned in 10 years was in one verse, 29th verse of the Bible. I thought, far yeah. out. And so then my wife said, are you going to come tomorrow night? I said, what for? <laughs> I've, I've heard it. So, so, so basically, that, that verse talks about a, a plant-based diet. Is is yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what what science proves today is the healthiest diet, the best way to increase your immune response is the diet in Genesis twenty one twenty nine. So then, after that, I, was, I my interest was piqued, and so what I I started to think, well, if that's mm. true, then what else does the Bible teach that Christians don't seem to know? Mm. And I started to study the Bible. I studied with five pastors. I watched evangelism. I I, I was growing close to God, mm. and I was seeking that. And then I finally read a book called The Great Controversy. Mm. And Classic. I read that book in three days. Mm. And, that, and, and that's not easy to do. That's a thick book and written in, what, the late 1800s or, or something. It's a, 1888, yeah. Yeah. So but I couldn't put it down. Tr- it tricky to read, yeah. It, took, it got hold of me. Yeah, my friend David Ashtrick, he read it in two weeks. John Bradshaw read it in about three. I tell him yep. to slow read it. I, I just, I don't think I even ate. I just sat and read that book. Yeah, amazing thing. I had a drug auction while my wife was at a camp meeting. As all the dealers came out to my house. And <laughs> uh, on the way in, I met my best friend who is now dead, shot himself. We had a can of beer and a joint together. And I went into camp and I sat there for three days, read this book. Mm. And a few days later, I was baptized. Not the way it's normally done, but I I knew everything about what the church taught, but I didn't know Christ, and I yeah. didn't through the book. And so since that time, it's been an amazing journey. I made two promises to God. One is I'd start memorizing scripture, which yeah. I did, and one is that I would do anything he asked me to do. I wow. wish I'd put a right on that. So, <laughs> it, I got thrown in the deep end, running an evangelistic campaign after Anthony Kent left New Zealand. He he mm. ran the first campaign. I did the follow-up. I got thrown in the deep end there, and the church actually approached me to be a pastor. I didn't, I didn't, and hey, I should be a pastor. They asked, they came and asked me, the president going one day, our conference leader, leader of our church, came and um, said, how would, how would you like to be a pastor? I was doing a lot of lay work. We had our own lay ministry, as it were, doing evangelism, leading people to God. Mm. And so that's been an amazing journey. I just that promising to do whatever God wanted me to do. So then I got to be a, asked to be a pastor and evangelist. I was asked to go and speak in, in Ghana and West Africa to run a Bible lecture series there. And my book, What's to Know on the Journey from Egypt to Canaan, it came out of that. So yeah, it's just been an amazing journey. And the, the contrast between the two, you know, as you said, Kent, Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. Mm. I didn't know that I was serving anybody, but, you know, I was fully on the devil's track. He was the one I was serving, the one that was getting me involved in all the ugly side of life. And, and, and it was very much a downward spiral by the sound of it. I mean, like, like you say, you've, you have friends who, who, who ended up dead, and it sounds like you very well could have ended up the, the same way. I could have ended up dead or in jail for many, many years. It's only by the grace of God. But it hasn't always been easy, so all the ill-gotten gain, he got rid of that. You, you can't have your legal money and become a Christian and hold on to it, and that disappeared. And yeah. So it's hard financially. And But, yeah, the, it's been an amazing journey. So 
serving this side, being on God's team, mm. way outweighs being on the devil's team. I wouldn't have it any other way, you know, I'd, this life being because it's a winning team. That's the reality, you know. They, this chess game is going to come to a close one day, and I know who's going to say checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be yeah. God his checkmate. And, you know, yeah. I, want, I want to be there to be to say he deserves to win this battle. That's what changed my heart. When I actually realised this, there's a great battle going on for our souls. You know, Alexander Saltz and Nitzen said the line between good and evil doesn't run along state. Uh, borders or political ideologies, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of man and through every man's heart. Wow. And when I understood that reading the Great Controversy, that we're going to vote. Every one of us has a vote, and it's not our general election. Mm. We're voting. Do we vote for the devil or do we vote for God? Mm. And I decided he deserves, after all that he had done, not just for me personally being a thing, but mm. for humanity, I gave him my vote. I've never regretted that. Wow, yeah, and it sounds like it's it's been a really interesting ride for you since then. Hey, thanks so much, Gordon, for for sharing your story, like both in the article and, and today on the Science Radio podcast. Awesome. God bless you and your ministry, Ken, and I hope um, my story is of value to somebody. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.